0: You're listening to the podcast for grain merchandisers, by grain merchandisers. Join us in our good-humored attempt to serve as a voice of reason in an industry fraught with misconceptions and hat-truths. And now, from deep in America's
1: heartland, this is the Elevator's Cut. Welcome back to another episode of The Elevator's Cut. I am one of your hosts, Jason Wheeler. And I am the other host, or another host, Roger Gaddis. Welcome back, everybody. It's been a little bit. It has, but we uh, we are delving into the zeitgeist once again. As uh, as we all know, we're in the middle of the CME summer of love, I think is what it's been. I don't know. I just said that. But uh, I know people are excited about all the ups and downs and excited of... is an interesting choice of words, Jason. It's... But, but, you know, we could sit here and and, and talk amongst ourselves and, uh, and, you know, not get anywhere. But today, we are lucky enough to be joined by a bit of an expert, I, I would call it a uh, pretty safe to say. Uh, Fred Seaman is on the line, Fred, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Jason and Roger. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, Fred and I have gotten to know each other over the last few, or maybe it's more than a few years now, uh, working together on some on some stuff with the rice futures contract, which is always fun. Um, but it is it's such a <laughs> it's such a small snippet of of uh, Fred stuff that he does. So first off, Fred, I'll just kind of give everybody some of your background. Um, you know, how you got to where you are and then and then what all responsibilities you have nowadays.
2: Sure. Well, uh, I, I got to the exchange in a, a pretty roundabout way, I would have to say, because I was actually a computer science uh, undergraduate and my first job out of college was actually uh, in the software industry and i kind of knew that that's probably not what i wanted to do forever so i always had plans to go back to graduate school and you know as i was thinking back on my undergraduate career uh, and and this kind of gives you some insight that i'm not the most normal person in the world but my favorite classes were economics and statistics so i Tried to find a program, a graduate program that would combine those two, and I went to Clemson University and uh, got a degree in applied economics and made the the really lucky choice uh, in my thesis to look at the relationship between cotton cash prices and futures prices, and that made me an agricultural economist. And uh, I graduated and actually ended up taking an academic position out of school and uh, really enjoyed that uh, at the University of Wyoming. Uh, but when I was in grad school, uh, I, I, my very first semester, I took a class in futures and options and just absolutely loved it. I, I knew I really didn't have the the personality to be a trader but I love the markets and I wanted to be involved in the markets in some way so when I found out that a position in economic research had opened at the Board of Trade uh, I was all over it and I'm working on my 20th year at the exchange now and I oversee uh, agricultural research at the exchange and the research department really does three main things Uh, we design and develop uh, new products so you know that is always exciting you know you can start with products you know very little about and you learn quite a bit uh and it's afforded me the ability to to travel all, all over the world as we've launched regional price discovery tools for people to use in conjunction with the Chicago benchmarks, uh, so you know, new product design is is a big part of of what we do. Um, the second thing we do is product maintenance, which in of itself sounds kind of boring, I suppose, but I can assure you that it is anything but. Uh, I I think of my job as you know, when when you write a futures contract, that's the rules of trade, right? So I think of my job is to create trading rules that do not favor either the natural long or the natural short. We want it to be balanced between those things. So, you know, if you have a term that you know is favorable for the long, you wanna find, you know, something else that will balance that in favor of the short. So I I joke with people, but, uh, you know, when we uh, conduct maintenance, because these contracts have existed, some of them, you know, corn, wheat, and oat futures launched January 2nd, 1877. So they've been around a a few years. Um, And, you know, the cash markets that underlie those futures markets are always evolving and changing. So it's our job to make sure that the futures – evolve and change with that cash market. And, you know, we talk to market participants and everyone's trying to get it, you know, just a little bit in their favor in a lot of instances. So I always joke that it's my job to make sure that all of my customers are a little unhappy because if they were perfectly happy, they probably have an, an edge in the market. So that's right. uh, that that's one of the things. That we do, and then the third thing we do is we write research papers. So you know, a lot of the content that you find on com comes from uh, my group.
1: Awesome. Well, I can tell from Roger and I both being active on Ag Twitter, you're extremely successful at keeping everyone unhappy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> if, if the market's <laughs> Yeah, everybody's, everybody, you know, there's a bunch of people worried, that the market's down, everybody's, no no one, the unhappiness abounds I, 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 in agriculture.
2: The,
0: the biggest thing to me has been the discovery of how many different gifts exist for bear things and bull things this summer. It's been incredible. <laughs> I, I, my horizons have been broadened beyond belief. It's phenomenal.
1: It's uh, a, it's,
2: this, this year has just been absolutely crazy. And, you know, uh, I, I read some of the services, you know, we're not allowed to trade, but I like to keep on top of what's going on. And I think it helps me do my job better. And, uh, you know, they were predicting this late last year. You know, the, the global uh, supply relative to use is, is low. It's low in the states. And when prices get high to, to, to represent that, it's going to be volatile uh so kind of our our first real volatile bull market since uh when you know i, I guess we were uh started one in 2008 that mm-hmm. ended in 2011 or so so i'm actually i always feel like it's really good for agriculture that you know we go through um a period not so much of volatility but of good prices uh, you know let everyone Make a little bit of money is is harrowing as it can be in these volatile markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, because the, what the alternative is, we're in some kind of low end range bound state that no one is happy in. I mean, you know, so like you said, Fred, this is this is great. It, it's causing a lot of gnashing of teeth and graying of hair, but it, it's man, talk about re- rejuvenating everything. This is this is between I mean, all the way from the farmer to the elevator to the lenders, this is. This has got people on their toes.
2: Oh, yeah, it, you know, we'll do that. And 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 not that, you know, I wish great volatility because I, I don't. I wish we could just have, you know, high prices and calm markets. But, you know, historically, those two things have never gone well together because when prices are high, it's because stocks are short. And, you know, one change in one of the weather prediction models and, and, you know, everyone's outlook changes. So it's just kind of the nature of the beast, I'm afraid.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's always uh, like you referred to 08. And uh, in in my view, that one was a different type of rally as far because it wasn't really necessarily short crops or anything. We had like carries. That. we were rallying with
0: big carries.
1: Yeah. that That was something like, you know. Obviously, I haven't been in the business forever or anything, but usually, like you're saying, you get the high prices, tons of volatility, which we we had all that. But you also usually have an in because the nearbys rally, you get them real high and then the the later crop years are a little less. And so, you know, from a farmer standpoint, "Ah, do I sell that because I can get so much right now that doesn't seem as good a price and yada, yada. But. In 08, we yeah, ra- like Roger said, like we we rallied and still had carries. So it from I know on the commercial side, what it meant was you sure you bought a bunch of grain like like guys have this year because prices are high and that's great, but you're also buying next year's crop and people are asking about the year after that's crop and now all of a sudden you get a bunch of uh, you know I guess margin call exposure and and all that stuff mm-hmm. on on. And and it's one thing to have it on bushels you have in house you can go to the bank and say look I got these bushels and this is the hedge for it and then you go to the bank and say I got this hedge and this uh, paper contract that is uh, you know the market shot a dollar since then but I, I'm sure they'll deliver it <laughs> at this lower price you know it's uh, <laughs> that's a bit uh, a bit a tougher pill to swallow for the bank so I mean that uh that one was was wild but so economically speaking, you know, you're the economist. Did it did it look that different to you? And if so, like, why? What's your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm a little bit fuzzy back on 08. I do remember it starting, uh, in my memory, in the wheat market. I uh, remember Minneapolis going to, what was it, $23. And I think Chicago and Kansas City got up into the, the teens, even low teens, maybe it was, I don't remember the exact number. And I forgot if it was Minneapolis that was at limit for, for five days, we were basically out of spring wheat. And I think that kind of, um, that was sort of the start of what, what, you know, what was going on for the, the, you know, 15 years before that was really the, the, uh, the development of China. At that time, you know, in in about 15 years, into 2008, about 300 million Chinese um, went from poverty to relative middle class status. And you know, think about that: 300 million people—that's the population of the United States. I don't know right. if there has been. Any time in human history, uh, including the industrial organization, that that many people moved from poverty to middle class status in a span of about 15 years, just unprecedented. And you know, really, we're privileged to have lived through kind of an era that uh, you know saw that happen. But what happens when people all of a sudden go from poverty to having a little bit of spending money is they they usually upgrade their diet. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that is usually to include more protein, meat, dairy, eggs. And, uh, I once did an, a calculation and I'm afraid I don't remember the numbers, uh, because it was pretty stark, but, uh, I, I, um, calculated the amount of U.S. farmland that is necessary to feed everyone in China one additional egg per year. Um, and it was pretty amazing. <laughs> so I think 2008 is when that finally broke through the markets. And, you know, that, that intense, incredible growth in global demand uh, hit the markets that supported prices all the way across the curve because at least domestically uh, you know we still had sufficient stocks. But I think the market was at the same time expecting uh, you know, a, a, a boom in agricultural commodities. And and that's what we saw. I think it just started in 08.
0: And and you know, Fred, I was I had only been in the elevator business maybe five years by that point, in 08. And uh, but I remember the first time I heard the term uh, or someone talking about the funds are buying or the funds are selling. And, and, you know, we've heard that multiple times since. And just even this week with the the huge uh, drop off yesterday in beans and corn and then, you know, the spring back today. And uh, that seems to be what a lot of people want to discuss. And, and and again, just from seeing another chatter out there, I think that that idea or that term of fund buying, fund selling is misunderstood the same way as risk management gets understood out there in a broader context. So, you know, it, you know, from, from commercial side, uh, the hedging side, when, when we hear funds are buying, funds are selling, what, what exactly, how do you interpret that? What exactly does that mean as far as um, the, the responsiveness or the, the, the ability for the market to do what, I guess what, the participants on the the production and and elevation side expect the market to do. It seems like funds get blamed for a lot of stuff. You know, what, what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, they do. And, and, uh, I recently, uh, did a, a, a presentation at NGFA where, uh, the risk committee had asked me, we recently increased speculative position limits, uh, in, uh, all of the 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 grains and oil seeds Uh, they hadn't been adjusted since 2014 Um, and uh you know that it it was due but you know people had concern you know is this going to increase the amount of speculation in the market so what i did was i went back and looked at previous uh, times when speculative interest I mean speculative position limits were increased and looked at uh, CFTC commitment of trader data and whether there was a marked increase in the amount of speculation in the market when you you increased uh, you know a spec limit and that's a little bit different uh, from you know what what you're saying here but the point that I want to get at is you uh, when you look at the makeup of the market and i often look at it uh you know back in in you know starting in 2008 there was a lot of of concerns about index funds because you know they buy in the market and they just hold and then they they roll their hedges so you know a lot of people thought that they were driving up prices so i like looking at the cftc supplemental report and it shows markets um, for all of the major commodities broken down into commercial non-commercial index and non-reportable so you have your index funds you know are measured you have your non-commercial so that would be all other specs that are reportable and then the commercials and and guys what's really amazing about these charts is how incredible, incredibly consistent the makeup of the market has been over time. And the, the CFTC has the data back to 2006, and from 2006 to current, uh, yeah, there's some variability in it, but each category tends to um, just vary within a particular range, and they're, they're remarkably stable. So yes, you know, back, Uh, When we had, uh, you know, the the commodity boom, um, the previous one, uh, you know, you'd read in the newspaper, oh, there's more speculation in the market. And it's true, there was. uh, There was more speculation in the market. But what they weren't picking up on was that there was a corresponding increase in uh, hedging as well, such that the overall makeup of the market remained remarkably stable. So you know, despite the fact that the markets have grown and there's there's more speculative trade than there was previous, there's also more commercial trade uh, than there there was previously as well. So you know that that's really cool. And uh, we did a study. I did a study, um, probably 2010 or so. I didn't have real good data though, and uh, I figured if, if, uh, if I tried to publish this study, no one would believe it anyhow because it's coming from the exchange. So uh, we hired an independent firm uh, to look at, you know, there, there's a difference between um, causality, you know, uh, do, does, does uh, you know, speculative trade cause prices to, to rise or fall? and uh, so uh, we hired them to do some causality analysis, and they were able to get specific data from the CFTC to do this analysis. you know, no one's positions were um, made uh, you know uh, available to them. That was all blacked out. but they could see uh, in the data, you know, each of the reportable traders um, movements, and, uh, you know, what they found in the causality analysis was really interesting. It's, it's not that speculators cause high prices, but high prices sure do attract a lot of speculation.
1: Yeah. That makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, both of them growing together, keeping, a, a, you know, somewhat of a ratio makes sense, too. I mean, it's, it's a risk transference thing. And, you know, over this last 20 years, I mean. Got more grain to hedge, you know, so we've got yeah. more users, more usage, more space that has to be uh, uh, futures, you know, spread with different months and things. So that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah. Oh and, yeah.
0: It,
2: it. Yeah. Go
1: ahead, Jason. Oh, I was just going to say, so from the from the you know commercial side or, or the farmer side and stuff, um, you know, we went to Fred. You were, you spoke at it a couple years ago. We the CFTC meeting that they. Or you know, with in conjunction with K State and all yeah, that they do, the park, yeah, yeah, here in Kansas City area, and um, that was, that was a big topic. It, uh, they did a couple of those, and it always is. And you got guys. I mean, there's the high frequency traders, algorithm things, and they're like you know operating on millionths of a second and all that, all that stuff going on. And people get really fired up about it. It's it's a really my opinion, now you, this is why we got you here, but uh, in my opinion, it's a completely different world. And from, of course, the the hedgers in terms of being upset about their rules. Now, within themselves, I'm sure there are issues they have to, to work out, but from a, but I, I think we had people there from the commercial grain business and legitimately, even just some big farmers that were there. And they hear all this stuff about what the high frequency traders and algorithms are able to do. And they hear presentations on it and they think somehow they're taking something from me right. because I can't do that. And I don't understand it. And um, and, yeah. and there's some there, you know, some sort of adversarial thing that they put out there. It, is it I guess my question, is it warranted? Uh, it, is it something somebody, uh, you know, farming or a grain elevator should be should should worry about and why and all that? That's my question, I guess. Long yeah,
2: you know, yeah, my, my opinion is for, you know, the the, 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 the commercial hedge customer, um, that should not be a concern. So, you know, back prior to 2006, all that daytime trade uh, was in the trading pits in Chicago. And there was an absolutely incredible population of market makers that stood on that floor every day, um, making markets so that, you know, when a hedge order came in, they would fill it. Um, and, you know, those, those market makers, uh, in, in that scenario were trying to make a tick, right? You know, they were trying mm-hmm. to, to buy at one tick and sell simultaneous almost at the next tick higher. Um, so, you know, even then, that was the price of liquidity. And in the big markets like you know corn and soybeans, it's it's typically one tick, it's a quarter of a cent, and you know that's that's what a commercial firm that was entering their order through their broker that got communicated to the floor, and you know the 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 uh, the floor broker would put up his hands, and you know the 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 market makers or we called them scalpers back then um, would you know compete for that order. Uh, and they were trying to make a, you know, a tick in most cases. And uh, when we went to daytime electronic trade, uh, you know, we offered both the floor and the screen, and these, uh, you know, these firms that, that people have concerns about, those are the ones that make liquidity on the screen. So they're, they're actually performing the same function as the market makers did on the floor. You know, mm. they are trying to to you know be very quick to the market and compete when uh you know a commercial order comes in and they're trying to you know buy it one tick and sell the next tick higher in most instances. Um so you know how it works, you know, the, the basic structure of it really hasn't changed. And you know the, the speed of it certainly has and you know, from our perspective, we weren't in, indifferent. I, I'm a, you know, I was around during the transition. I absolutely loved the trading floor, um, but the, the, you know, the, the electronic trade and the screen is what m- most market participants uh, liked. They loved, uh, you know, being able to place an order, get it filled, and know what their fill was almost instantaneous. Uh, So, you know, the market evolved from the floor to the screen. Uh, So, you know, that's what the customers chose. So it's really kind of the same structure. But, you know, what they're paying a quarter of a cent in most cases is that that price for, uh, you know, liquidity.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good, good explanation because, yeah, and I, I see you know, guys, they they think, all right, well, you know, somebody's making, money. and in the back of their head, they're thinking, I sold my beans for nine and a half dollars now to thirteen, and somebody made that money. Well, that that's not that's not really what happened. for for these guys, it's about you know, like you said, the the quarter cent or the tick. And for these guys that are upset about it are guys that off that sell their cash grain or buy their cash grain, and they always round it to the nearest. Penny right they're they not <laughs> concerned about a quarter of a cent you know it's it's immaterial to them but they do think somehow there's somebody you know pulling strings behind the thing making billions of dollars off
0: of. well off you record. always see an twitter for example this week not just this week this week in particular where there's this cry like ah, oh, we if the pits were still open this wouldn't have happened and i don't know what they're talking about honestly I, i'm not that smart <laughs> yeah. a guy but it's like what wouldn't happen that you couldn't have got a trade off, or what's the deal? And it just seems like there's this idea that screen trading has really—you you see people talk about the market being broken constantly, and this goes into our next uh, uh, point here pretty pretty easily too when we get to into convergence. But you know, the, the the idea that algorithms have broken the market, and if the pits were open, none of this would be a problem.
1: Yeah, because we never yeah. had gaps higher and lower not right, right. get filled because if there were people down there we'd fill all those gaps and we'd make it nice and tidy or I and I don't know why gaps need filled and but they have to and I'm really <laughs> really confused by all of it but sometimes but anyways people are pretty fired up yeah
2: oh gosh I remember fast markets back in the pit days oh, and yeah. uh we got just as many calls uh during those days as we do now so uh you know it's it, you just get in a volatile situation right. where the price moves a lot in a short period of time. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it makes your stomach turn, doesn't it? And, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you want to get grasp, you know, what's causing this. Uh, did it rain in Chicago today? Uh, you know, that, <laughs> that kind of mentality. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 completely understand, but, uh, uh, yeah, that those guys are turning for a tick, not turning mm-hmm. for,
1: you know, three dollars. Well, and it's funny how we get the, uh, you know, now that we're removed from it, it's like, gosh, I wish, because, cause back in those days we could trust all those guys on the floor. Everybody trusted them so much, didn't they? They just, they just loved those guys.
2: Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you guys, you were around, so you know, um, the, and, and I am not, I, am, I, I love the floor. I thought the floor yes. did some things extremely, extremely well. But what I think the reason that customers migrated to the screen is that ability to see the depth of market mm-hmm. and you know the the 10 best bids and the 10 best offers and the and the depth at those so you know i want to do a, a, a big trade how much slippage am i going to get right. and you know that with an, an electronic trade whereas with a uh, you know on on, on the on the pit, you had to work that order, uh, to, to avoid slippage. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I think that was a, one of the, 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 big reasons that, that people migrated to the screen, but nonetheless, I, I was still, I, the, the pit worked wonderfully for over a hundred years. And, uh, you know, there were some really good people down there and I think the markets worked really well, but I think the markets work really well now. And, You know, let's not discount that grain trade, whether we like it or not, has become more global. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, there is more traders that are connected to the markets from around the world than there was previously. So, you know, back in the day, yeah, something might have happened in rural Kazakhstan And no one would really notice for a little bit. But eventually, you know, the effects on the wheat market, it would filter its way into the wheat market. Well, now in a global market, man, that stuff is known right away. And the market reacts immediately. And I think people interpret that as, you know, new volatility when it's really the same volatility. It's just volatility on a global scale that's reacting to information as it happens mm-hmm. rather than as it filters in.
0: Yeah. And you see that a lot of people say, ah, oh, you think the market's factored this in yet? It's like if you or I are talking about it, then yes, the answer is yes. The market has filtered this. in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Ever since Borat, everyone knows about what's going on in City, So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and
2: here, here's a really good story for you guys. Uh, So I am a, this, this just tells you the importance of the markets and and you guys know this and your customers know this, but, uh, you know, it really, it re really reinforces that. So one of my very first trips as an exchange employee, right. Um, went to see a midsize grain merchandiser and, um, You know before the meeting started so this was almost 20 years ago before the meeting started you know we were you know doing the usual pleasantries and the trader that we were meeting with uh was talking about uh he was trading rail cars of corn back in 1992 when there was the great chicago tunnel flood and if you guys Google that sometime if you're not familiar with it it it, uh, thankfully predates me at the exchange but uh, they were doing some work over on the Chicago River uh, in April of 1992 and there is a system of tunnels that run underneath downtown Chicago that contain all of the electrical wires and they accidentally punched a hole in one of these tunnels and they all flooded um, so it was, a, an absolute mess and disaster. Um, and downtown was without services. So then, you know, there was no servers, uh, backup servers and things like that. It was just the trading floor. Uh, so the board was closed for two days because of, of this, uh, tunnel flood and this merchandiser that we were visiting with, he said he was trading corn in the Evansville rail market. So he's trading rail cars of corn. And he said the bid offer spread was about, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like three cents. Um, and, you know, that was just the cost to, to buy or sell in that market. It cost you three cents. And he said when the board went off because of the flood, um, it was closed for two days. Uh, you know, the merchandisers were not able to, to, uh, to hedge their risk. And the bid offer spread in that market went from three cents to 13 cents, stayed there for two days. And when the board came back on, it went back to three cents. Mm. And that's just one point of merchandising, right? You know, there's many, many more. And if it's 10 cents of efficiency of being able to manage your risk, uh, mm. That multiplies pretty quickly, and that's probably why, you know, we have people from all over the world visiting the exchange saying we want to set up a futures exchange in our country, too, uh, because they understand that mm-hmm. that efficiency. But, you know, the, the point I make, particularly, uh, you know, to farmers, is that if you would have sold during those two days, you re- would have received less. Than what you would have otherwise, because the the board was yeah, closed.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then, and, and the same for a buyer. If you were a buyer, you paid more if you had to buy during those two days than you would have otherwise. Uh, so, I, I, I know I'm I'm probably preaching to the choir. You guys understand, you know how important the markets are, particularly for commercial participants. But that just always illustrated to me and made me really proud of, uh, you know, working at the exchange and, and you know, providing these contracts and, and trying to keep them relevant and liquid. And, and, you know,
0: Fred, you still kind of see some of that stuff out in the country, too, uh, you know, w- w- with play, uh, buyers specifically during harvest on weekends taking protection on their bids because they can't get a hedge off between Friday afternoon and, and Sunday night. Yep. You know, that still happens, <laughs> you know, especially, if we had had a day like yesterday happen today on a Friday going into the weekend during <laughs> wheat harvest, oh everybody'd been taking protection until they could get exposure to layoff risk again come Sunday night. You know, so that it still happens, but I think it just it, it, it's it's working in the background so much now that people don't realize it's working. Which mm-hmm. is probably the way yeah. it's intended to be. It works so well you don't even know it's there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, in the ideal world, that's exactly right.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I I do want to get on to our, our big topic. Uh, we, we want to talk to you about, of course, is convergence. Um, we Roger and I have taken our own stabs at convergence on on this podcast actually in the past, mm-hmm. and uh, but we're just a couple of Hicks from Arkansas that uh, you know observe it on our own. But we we come across the guys who are like you know, hey, this the market's broken. The the convergence isn't great you know it's it's bad we, we've had what uh congressmen get get involved in it at, time, oh, at times that uh it's yeah. the farther the farther you get removed from the business the the, the bigger worse, deal it is the worse the understanding but yeah that but yeah i mean people with enough power that that have you know misunderstanding and go after you know convergence or whatever it may be it's a a bit of a squishy term but um but anyways we have a you know one of the big economists from the CME group on on the podcast. So we would be remiss if we didn't get your take on uh, convergence and its role, I guess.
2: Sure, Uh, and uh, just keep in mind that I'm really just a hick from North Carolina, so. uh, (laughs) We get a lot of uh, (laughs) degrees. But uh, yeah, you know, and and this is something that that, uh, it, it comes up, Periodically, when a commodity is oversupplied, and we see it most often in wheat, and you know what will happen, uh, I, I'm thinking back 2007, maybe with uh, you know country bids for soft wheat um, at you know a dollar, dollar fifty under. And, you know, people say, well, the, the contract is not converging, it's broken. And I will always argue that the contract always converges because what we're trading is a commodity that uh, can be loaded from in-store with a federal grain inspection. So it's the price into the elevator more so than the price out of the elevator. It just so happens that cash price series from USDA, DTN, that kind of thing are usually posted bids. So we measure it um, relative to, uh, you know, what, what what bids are to farmers, right? And that's, that's fine well, lots of the time, you know? um that does not cause any any eyebrows to be raised but when you get into an oversupplied situation and i'm like you know imagine you're an elevator operator and you know your grain bin is getting full it is full perhaps and you're thinking well and i got corn and soybean season coming up how much you know space am i going to be able to be made for that and the wheat keeps arriving. You know, what do you do to to stop that flow if um, you really don't have any place to put it? Uh, you know, and and you know your costs are going up significantly uh, because you know you know, might have to put that that uh, that wheat. On the ground somewhere uh, i've got a picture that i put in a lot of my presentations on um on uh conversions and it was uh you know uh, a kansas co-op uh that that rented a closed down air force runway uh to pile wheat on it uh that's the that that's the price of the wheat um, that is, shows up in the, you know, the USDA bids, uh, that is not the wheat that's being traded on the exchange. And, you know, the, the, the reason the elevator has to drop those bids is because the cost of handling that grain uh, in a situation, not to mention the opportunity cost of, you know, what you've given up in, you know, merchandising opportunities let's say in corn and soybeans in a few months yeah. time is pretty immense so you know the only way that you'll take in more of something you don't want is if you can make more of you know uh, compensate yourself for those costs in the basis um, so you know the basis there uh, gets really weak even though you know the 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 value of the grain in store that could be sold either in a futures market, if you're a regular elevator, but also in you know a country elevator, you know, uh, supplying a exporter or a, a, a miller, you know, the value of that is completely different. Now, we get where, um, you know, country bids at a dollar under don't look good. Uh, so, even though I would argue that there has been convergence, um, it's not a good look. So we do, uh, when that happens, try to adjust storage rates so that the, you know, the storage rates paid in the futures market and financial full carry and how wide the spreads can go, re, you know, reflect also what the you know the the cost is for storage in uh in the elevator in the in the cash and physical market so we do have to adjust that from time to time and that allows some of that you know that basis um bid to go into the future spread so that you know the spreads yeah. get wider mm-hmm. and you know it it uh you you get convergence again to the you know the the country bids uh so you know we're 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 very responsive to you know people why they would have concerns with that but really the point is that from the elevator's perspective they're still paying the same flat price it's just a, a stronger basis and they're making that up in the spread because the spread's wider Mm-hmm. Does
1: that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, and I think, yeah, it's like what you're saying is, when when you do have a, a big convergence issue, and a big under basis, you essentially get the futures market to reflect the cash market better. Essentially, get it in a way down to the cash market in the nearby, and it causes those spreads <laughs> to go to bigger carries. But a lot of people don't, you know, when when there's a big. In, uh, big under basis they think well obviously our cash market is wrong and the futures market is right. right and so if we fix this we'll have a much higher price but it's just like you said that even no. though the cme group's a big deal and and everything and the, there's lots of high frequency traders and algorithm blah 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 in the end if you want to make it if you're trying to make it um closer to the cat you move to the cash con the, to the cash market i should say because it, you know, at the end of the day, that's the king. That's that's really what what kind of matters. The market that's b- being paid for the physical mm-hmm. commodity. You know, mm-hmm. so that's uh. I think I don't want to miss. Uh, I don't want to con- yeah. miss your words. So tell me if I. But I yeah, that's. And then that's in, in years it. like this where it's
0: it's inverted and super high bases, no one talks about convergence. So. Well,
1: do you <laughs> though? That's another question I had. If bases is too high, do you guys have? What do you think of that? Do you ever get well, problems uh, or?
2: yeah, I, I, I concern myself with that okay. um, indeed, but you know there's no there is no um, there's no mechanism, right? There's nothing that limits how inverted a spread can go. Uh, mm-hmm. It only uh, you know, the storage rate affects how wide the spread can go, but you know there's nothing, you know, no matter what the storage rate, the inversion in the market can be, uh, you know, whatever the market needs it to be. Um, so if you have a really hot basis, um, with cash above futures, I just want to make sure that our futures contracts are, um, you know, that the longs can execute on them in that situation, because I kind of think of, of delivery is, is sort of two prong, you know, uh, Nobody should be using the, the futures market as a source for green. Uh, it is a risk management tool and delivery only exists to assure that convergence between cash and futures. So, you yes. know, there's there really that's the only time someone should be active in the, you know, t- taking delivery and then load out. So I always think of, you know, in the, the other situation uh, when cash is below futures, and if the spreads are, you know, inside of, of full carry, that, um, you know, the, the, the elevators or the regular elevators at the exchange uh, put out deliveries to, uh, to widen that spread and drive convergence, uh, you know, drive the nearby down to the, to the cash level. Well, the opposite should work as well. So, if you have cash above futures a long should be able to stand on that and not liquidate. Um, And if they end up taking delivery, usually deliveries are late in the delivery period when that happens, Mm -hmm. uh, they need to be able to execute on it. So that kind of goes back to my, you know, we try to find balance. You know, we need our regular elevators um, to assure deliverable supply in the contract, but we also want it to be executable from the long side of the market so they can drive that convergence from above.
1: Nice. Yeah, I, I, uh, man, you're, Roger and I are sitting here in a room with headphones on listening to you and if somebody walked by, they'd be like, man, those guys must be listening to Nelly or something. I'm just (laughs) like, man, this is really good. I, man, You said it very well, better than we could say. (laughs) That was really good on on all the uh, programs, a lot of so.
2: a lot of pr- a lot of practice jason <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah like you said you got your uh your standard convergence presentations you make and so yeah it's really awesome. good um uh, anyways i i i know we went uh tad long but that's okay we, yeah this is good stuff we don't norm I, or ever have uh someone uh this uh highly educated on our show so we we got a lot to learn I have allowances here for that It's <laughs> <is> great
0: so <laughs> Fred, thank you so much for uh, uh, coming on today. And then uh, if not laying to rest some of the issues, at least explaining them where hopefully our audience can hear and and take away some good uh, facts from it, from someone who's dealing with this stuff day in and day out, as opposed to uh, all of the stuff that may or may
2: not be on ag Twitter at any given point in time. (laughs) Yeah.
1: We really appreciate it. uh,
2: Go ahead. Guys, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Jason, Roger, I, 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 uh, love your show so uh thanks for having me All
1: oh, right. man we, we appreciate that and yeah we we've, we've uh, I know Fred you and i've been talking for a while about getting this done so i'm glad we we're able to to do it uh finally but i hopefully this this brings out a lot of questions amongst uh listeners and stuff and if you guys want to reach out Fred you want to go ahead and give your cell phone no, no I'm joking um, <laughs> no.
2: You guys can, as always,
1: you know, tweet at, at us at the show or DM us on on Twitter is the main way yeah. to reach out. But do that, and uh, if we can accumulate some, some more feedback,
0: we'll do it again. Yeah. We'll
1: uh, we'll have Fred back maybe if we can we can get it scheduled again and and ask uh, some more questions because, yeah, uh, as as economists go, man, you're you're uh, pretty easy to listen to and pretty engaging and uh, not monotone. What's it? Polytone? Is that what you call it? I don't know. I always enjoy uh, listening to you, so appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, no problem. Glad to do it, guys. As always, thanks for downloading and listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with folks you know in the business. And
0: if you'd like to reach out anytime about anything at all or have any show ideas, you can always find us on Twitter at Elevators Cut. Follow us there, tweet at us, DM us, and we'll always respond. Till next time, for Roger, I'm Jason. For Jason, I'm Roger.
1: Thanks for listening to The Elevator's Cut. Oh!